You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. As they're coming up, you guys, if you have Bibles, can make your way to the book of Nehemiah. Continuing on in our series in Nehemiah this morning. Uh, We'll be in Nehemiah chapter 4, and if you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles that are under the seats there, uh, page 400 uh, is where you're going to find, find today's text. And like Dana said and John mentioned too, just really uh, glad to have all of you in here, kindergarten through fifth grade folks. Um, you are a really important part of our church and uh, you do bring a lot of life and joy to us here. So um, I know we don't get to see you many times here during this part of the service, but uh, we are really glad for you and that you're part of our church and good to have you in here with us today. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I asked us all to be cautious um, not to read today's circumstances and politics back into the book of Nehemiah. Uh, As much as we can, uh, we need to do the hard work to bridge the cultural gap uh, to understand what life was like in the 5th century BC when when this was written. Uh, An important part of that is to understand the significance of walls in this time period, Uh, the goodness of lines even, as Pastor John was talking uh, to our kids about today. Uh, For the majority of the history of human civilization, up until really only a few hundred years ago, a city was not a city unless it had walls. Uh, Walls were boundaries. They were unmovable and therefore indisputable boundaries. They were part of your identity uh, as a citizen. Uh, We read in Nehemiah chapter 1 how shamed the people of Jerusalem were. Uh, An unwalled city as opposed to being a place of flourishing, was was a place, it was like flying a flag that said, we are a weak and worthless people. Do whatever you want here. Pass on through, conquer us, whatever it is you want to do. Walls defined a place for a given group of people uh, where certain laws, where a certain way of life could be pursued and upheld, where flourishing could actually happen. Uh, There was the wild and vast and often lawless spaces that were open without borders, and there was the order and structure of a walled city. And then, of course, walls were your protection. Walls were protection in that time and place. They were your defense. They were your refuge. In a day long before missiles and bombs and drone strikes and things that we have today, uh, walls were what protected you from enemy invasions, uh, from theft, from oppression, from subjugation. So as we study this book, uh, whatever you think about border walls today in our time and place, remember, remember that rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, which was the city of God, which was the city where the temple of God stood, rebuilding those walls was part of God's redemption and salvation of his people. It was part of completing the work that God was doing of bringing his people out of exile and back into their own land. And it was one of the walls, the gates of Jerusalem. They were some of the most tangible symbols of God's own protection of his people. So with that in mind, listen now with open ears to this book that we love. Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And I made Casey read all the hard words and names of places last week, so there's very few of those in in this chapter. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. 
And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Verse seven, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in, the, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon in the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. Verse 21, so we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Oh, gracious God, merciful Father, you have given us the rich and precious jewel of your holy word. Guide us now by your spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort to reform us, to renew us according to your own image, to build us up into the perfect building of Christ. Grant this, O oh, heavenly Father, for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. 
three things uh, for us to see in Nehemiah chapter 4 this morning. What we need protection from, how we protect ourselves, and who we trust for protection. What we need protection from, how we protect ourselves, and who we trust for protection. So first, what we need protection from. There's a twofold answer uh, given here in Nehemiah chapter 4. Externally, we need protection from our enemies. And internally, we need protection from faithlessness. So in the opening verses here, we re-meet Sanballat and Tobiah. Uh, Back in chapter 2, we we met them the first time. They began to oppose the rebuilding efforts. Here, in chapter 4, their opposition is growing. Uh, They're joined, as we read, by the army of Samaria, and then down in verse 7, by the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites. It's the AAA that you don't want to call when you're broken down. If we were to plot these people groups on a map, if we were to plot them on a map, we would see that they surround Jerusalem. They surround them. Samaria is in the north. Arab peoples were in the south. Ammonites were on the east. Ashdod, which is formerly Philistia, the home of the Philistines, was to the west. So the opposition to this work is pervasive. The enemies of the Jews of Jerusalem, they surround them on every side. And as they oppose them, they employ a couple tactics. First, they ridicule. They ridicule, they mock them. Sanballat asks these five rhetorical mocking questions. What are the feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall themselves? Will they sacrifice? That phrase there in the original language means something like, what, are they gonna, are they gonna pray this wall into existence? Will they finish it in a day? Will they revive stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah, his counterpart, immediately piles on. Yeah, that wall couldn't even stop an animal, let alone an army. Notice here, it takes absolutely no courage to ridicule people when you've got your own echo chamber crew rolling with you. It takes no courage to do that. It's like bashing a conservative on MSNBC. It's like bashing a liberal on Fox News. This is not acts, these are not acts of valiance and fortitude. Nehemiah's enemies, they might seem emboldened. Mockery might seem like confidence. But what is it really? Verse 1, anger, rage. Verse 7, they were very angry. When enemies ridicule, they're actually angry and nervous. They're, They're freaked out that Nehemiah might actually succeed here that Jerusalem's walls might actually be rebuilt. Otherwise, why rally people from every side of Jerusalem to oppose the work? And when ridicule fails, they plot. Verse 8, they they conspire to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion. It's hard to tell whether they were actually planning a full-scale kind of attack against the city because remember that Nehemiah has the permission, has the blessing of the king of Persia, of, of the entire Persian Empire. He has letters to the governors of these territories proving that he has the king's blessing on this work. So an act against the rebuilding efforts here would actually be an act against the king of Persia. And so perhaps these enemies were planning more small-scale attacks, little guerrilla warfare type attacks to discourage the people, but it's unlikely they were mounting a full-scale attack. Either way, they start to spread rumors, like in verse 11. They're going to show up at any time, and they're going to kill the builders, and they're going to stop the work. 
external enemies. In addition to the external enemies, though, we need protection from internal faithlessness. And so in verse 10, for example, reads, In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to build the wall. We miss this because we, most of us, almost all of us, don't know Hebrew, which is the original language. In the original language of these words, it's written as a couplet. So this is like a, like a poem or even like a short song that was being sung by the people. And probably it was a country song based on the sound of it. But where is this song being sung? Where is it being sung? In Judah. In and among other Jewish people. It's not the enemies that are singing this song. And they're singing a refrain about their strength failing and about not being able to succeed. So if you remember the children's story, The Little Engine That Could, right? I think I can. This is the opposite of that. This is them chanting, we know we can't, we know we can't, we know we can't. Not especially encouraging to the builders. On top of that, verse 12, the Jews from Judah who live around Jerusalem They're coming to the builders in Jerusalem and they're saying to the people there, you have to return to us. It's too dangerous. The enemies are mounting an attack. Any day now, they're gonna raid and they're gonna kill everybody here. Get out of here. Get out of here. They plead with them not once, but 10 times, it says. From our allies, or even from within our own hearts and minds, Faithlessness is just as great, if not a greater danger from which we need protection. Why is that? Because we know our enemies don't want good things for us. We know that. We know that's that's the definition of an enemy. We know they have a different agenda. But our allies, or even our own hearts and minds, this is supposed to be on our side. This is supposed to be our own team. And so we rightfully give our allies in our own hearts and minds We give those voices a lot more weight. And that's usually a good thing, except except when those voices begin to sound exactly like the enemy. When there ceases to be a distinction between those voices. At the end of the day, a faithless ally will say almost the same thing as an enemy. A faithless ally will say almost the same thing as an enemy. It might be disguised as concern or prudence as it is here. That will make it a lot easier and tempting for us to believe. But if your ally and your enemy are telling you the same thing, something has gone terribly wrong. Now, how do we experience this today? How do we experience this today? The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, rather than another nation or another people group, Satan is our ultimate adversary. He is the enemy of our souls. He rages against Jesus and his people, and he uses ordinary means to do that. He works powerfully in the world, most often through people and through systems that reject God, and seek to undermine and suppress God's people. And so we need protection from this ultimate adversary, from Satan. The apostle Peter writes in his letter that that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he will use ridicule and rumor and threat 
and a thousand other tactics to get us to stop living a life of believing and following and obeying Jesus. But just as great a danger is our own faithlessness. From fellow Christians who were meant to be allies with us and from our own hearts and minds. We can be deceived. We will experience the gravitational pull of choosing the easy and the comfortable thing over and against the right thing in our lives. That will happen. Let's not pretend otherwise. And let's also not pretend that even out of a good desire or concern for us, other Christians will at times give us terrible advice that in the end amounts to faithlessness. Just one of what could be a number of examples this morning. Satan would love for Christians to be silent and private people. Satan would love for Christians to be silent and private people, to keep the good news of the finished work of Jesus Christ to themselves. And so a dominant cultural narrative right now, at least in regards to historic Orthodox Christianity, is that, hey, it's fine to believe whatever you want, but just keep that to yourself. Keep it to yourself. Live a disintegrated kind of life. Put that in another compartment from the rest of your life. And our own hearts will tell us that at times. Do they not? Does it not? Mine does. My own heart will tell me that at times. And other well-meaning Christians might say things like, hey, Christianity is right for me. I know that. Uh, but who am I to say that it's right for everyone? Now, I am not advocating for brashness uh, or being obnoxious or being uncharitable, so please don't hear any of that. But when God says via the prophet in Isaiah chapter 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. When the apostle Peter says in Acts chapter four, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This means that we can never be silent and private people with our faith. That for the life and salvation of the world, we must never be private and silent people, but we must remain gracious and faithfully present in public, in the public square, sharing the good news of Jesus with our words, with our lives. When your ally and your enemy say the same thing, something has gone terribly wrong. And so friends, pay attention to this and find protection, find protection by saturating yourself in scripture, by internalizing and learning the promises of God, the truths of God, by hiding God's word in your heart, as the psalmist puts it. Only then can we discern the voice of God from the voice of an enemy. Only then will we discern the truth from a lie and be protected from both our external enemies and our own internal faithlessness. Second, and continuing in that same vein, let's consider more about how we protect ourselves. If that's what we need protection from, how do we protect ourselves? Uh, as Casey said last week, uh, Nehemiah is a narrative. Uh, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. So there's no command here in Nehemiah chapter four uh, that we're supposed to follow. But from the response of Nehemiah and the people here, we can draw out a handful of implications for how we pursue protection as God's people in this time and this place. The first one is prayer. Prayer. And we've seen Nehemiah do this before. 
Uh, So back in chapter 1, prayer was Nehemiah's initial response when he heard the devastating news about the condition of Jerusalem and the condition of the people there. Here, prayer is his initial response to the ridicule from his enemies. He doesn't lash out at them. He doesn't turn back and, and answer them. He talks to God. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. From there, and I'm sure you heard this as we read it, the prayer gets pretty stark. Uh, Nehemiah prays that God would turn their taunts back on themselves. He prays that they would be pillaged and exiled as the Jews had been, that God would not forgive or forget their sin. And this isn't the only place in Scripture that we encounter prayers like this. Uh, They're sometimes referred to as imprecatory prayers, or in the Psalms, there's a number of Psalms that have lines like this. They're called imprecatory Psalms. And whenever we encounter those in Scripture, they should give us pause. They should give us pause. Because it's one thing to pray for your own deliverance. It's another thing to pray for the destruction of your enemies, that God would not forgive or forget their sin. Didn't Jesus teach us to love our enemies? Like, how, how does this compatible with that? How do these two things fit together? I'll say it this way. There's a huge difference between self-righteous hatred and a mercy-conscious longing for the justice of God. So self-righteous hatred, that, that comes from a place of arrogance. That comes from a reductionistic perspective that I'm good, God's enemies are bad. It's an attitude that then says, I win and they lose because I'm better than them. Thanks, God. But how are you and I described apart from the intervening work of God, from the mercy of God in our lives? Enemies. Colossians 1, Romans 5, left to ourselves, we are enemies of God. And so it's not just these extreme examples we might think of, the Hitlers and the Stalins of the world. All of us who rebel against God in our sin, as we sin, we are setting ourselves up in opposition to him as his enemies. And so as we affirm in our in-covenant vows here at Liberty Church, therefore our only hope is God's mercy through the liberating work of Jesus Christ. Clinging to that mercy then, as those who cling to that work of Christ, clinging to that mercy, it is then right and good to long for for God's justice to prevail in the world. For God to triumph and to put an end to all opposition against him. Hopefully, Hopefully, by means of more and more enemies like we once were, humbling themselves and repenting and becoming God's friends and God's people. But for those who don't, for those who persist and set themselves up against God again and again, God cannot let wickedness and evil go on forever. To do so would not be loving or good. And God has promised he will not subject his people, he will not subject his world to wickedness and to evil forever. And so like Nehemiah, we can and we should pray mercy-conscious prayers of longing for God's justice to prevail in the world even today. So prayer is one of the ways we protect ourselves. In addition to that, we protect ourselves with wisdom and work. By taking precautions, and then getting to the work at hand. Notice here, after Nehemiah prays in verses four and five, the opposition doesn't go away. It intensifies. 
But I love the lack of a transition between verses five and six. The enemies ridicule, Nehemiah praise, and then verse six, so we built the wall. It's as though Nehemiah and the people aren't even phased. They opposed us, we prayed, and we did it anyway. They are not arrogant or foolhardy in that, however. They're, they're aware of the danger and they are appropriately cautious. But get this, they only allow wisdom to slow their progress, not fear. Verse eight, the nation's plot. Verse nine, Jerusalem again prays to God and sets a guard. Prayer and a plan, prayer and action. Later on in the chapter, we, we heard some of the specific ways that Nehemiah employs wisdom and caution in the work. So he picks key weak points in the wall to defend. Uh, he stations people there with their own clans. He has their own families right there with each of the builders. And it becomes an immediate, tangible, invisible reminder of the stakes that are involved. Their brothers and sons and daughters and wives and their homes. This work is not just for themselves. There are other people of God who need the protection of a rebuilt Jerusalem. Work for their good, too. And then continuing down in verses 16 through 23, Nehemiah divides his own servants into two groups. Uh, one to build, one to keep the weapons and the armor. The laborers who are transporting materials, they're bringing the materials to the builders. They carry with one hand, and in the other hand, they hold a weapon. The laborers who are actually building on the wall, they have their swords strapped at their sides at all times. And Nehemiah, we read, is going to put himself at the front of any fighting. The trumpeter stays right next to Nehemiah, which means that if there is any fighting that breaks out, those two men, Nehemiah and the trumpeter, are running toward the fight, not away from it, so that they can get there and sound the alarm and other, the other people can rally to them at that point. Nehemiah also keeps the people of Jerusalem there overnight. And that provides protection for the city around the clock. It also makes it infinitely more difficult for enemy spies or enemy combatants to sneak into the city with laborers each morning. There's a lot of wisdom in the precautions that he takes here. And so diligent is Nehemiah and his own servants that they don't even change their clothes. So they smelled bad, really bad, but they were diligent. They didn't change their clothes. They were always ready with a weapon at hand. Again, there's no command here for us to follow. But here's the implication that I want to draw out from this. Our adversary, our enemy, the devil, he wants to slow or to stop the advance of the gospel, the advance of the kingdom of God. Uh, he wants to implode the church and local expressions of it here and to the ends of the earth. Don't be surprised by that. Don't be surprised by that, when you see churches implode, when you see things that, that seem to bring the advance of the gospel to a grinding halt, don't be surprised by that. Don't be phased by that. Instead, like Nehemiah, cry out to God for protection. Cry out to God for his justice to triumph over wickedness and evil in the world. And then press on in the work. Be wise, be appropriately cautious, but be undeterred. As a church, we have a, a doctrinal and confessional statement. Uh, and we have a statement also that clarifies what we understand scripture to teach about marriage, about gender, and about sexuality. Now, we don't have those statements because I or the other leaders here 
want or need or expect people to agree with those things before they become friends with us, before they even become part of this church and a meaningful part of of our lives as a church. And in fact, it would be a great sorrow, and I would feel it as a failure, if the only people in this room on any given Sunday, or the only people in our homes throughout the week, are people who already checked all of those boxes. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you struggle with some of the beliefs of historic Orthodox Christianity, you are welcome here. And I pray that you feel that welcome, even today. At the same time, while there are many who sincerely seek, who explore the Christian faith, there are those who are hostile toward it. There are those who are hostile toward it, who as instruments of Satan, and I do not say that lightly, seek the destruction of Jesus' church. And so you have to station the proverbial guard at the proverbial wall. And we lay out in those, those documents what we believe clearly and succinctly so that, among other things, we can claim the protections of religious freedom that by the common grace of God are part of our society. It's not the only reason those documents exist. They exist for clarity and for unity, but they also exist for protection. But see this. The point of the Christian life is not to sit entrenched in a defensive posture of protection. We are not meant to brandish our swords defensively all the time. If we have our hands on the sword all the time, that means we are not building. And the point, friends, is to build, is to build. Peter calls the church living stones being built into a spiritual house. Paul says that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets as we sung together this morning, Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. The kingdom of God must be built, must advance. It must not just be defended. At the same time, that sword had better always be on your hip. Always ready. Prepared for the moments of real opposition, of real spiritual attack, the lies that would turn us away from faithfully following Jesus. We keep our sword on us at all times, but we remember the point is to build, to see the kingdom of God, to see the gospel advance. And lest we miss the central truth of this text, let's talk about the one who really protects us. Third and finally, who we trust for protection. Nehemiah's confidence is not in his precautions. It's not in his people. It's not in his wise tactics or his leadership. It is in the God of heaven and earth. The Lord, verse 14, who is great and awesome. The one who hears his prayer, verse 4. The one who frustrates the plans of his enemies, verse 15. One scholar calls Sanballat and Tobiah and the enemy nations that surround Jerusalem. One author calls them, quote, helpless spectators of events of which they did not approve. Helpless spectators of events of which they did not approve. God hears, God frustrates, and verse 20, God fights for us. And anyone hearing Nehemiah proclaim these words when he originally spoke them, any original reader of this text 
would immediately be drawn back centuries earlier to the Israelites standing on the shore of the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his army and those who had enslaved and oppressed them for 400 years now bearing down on them and there's nowhere to go. And Moses lifts up his head and he lifts up his voice and he says, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Our God will fight for us. This he has done, this he is doing, this he will do, and this is our ultimate protection. God, our rock and our refuge. God, our strong tower. The one whose justice will prevail. And ultimately, it is not only Sanballat and Tobiah, but all the enemies of God who will find themselves but helpless spectators of events they don't approve. Did you notice this? In the text, Sanballat ridicules the people with rhetorical questions. He just peppers them one after the other. But in the end, all the answers to those questions are yes. Will they restore the city? Yes. Will they pray it into existence? Yes. Will they finish up in a day? Well, not one, but 52, which is insanely fast. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? That is exactly what they will do. Because the great and awesome God who hears their prayers and frustrates the plans of their enemies will fight for them. Church, whatever protections are afforded to you and I in this life, they are nothing compared to the eternal safety, the eternal protection found in knowing and being known by the God who fights for his people, who has accomplished our salvation in Jesus, who has given his Holy Spirit to us. So be alert to the danger, the enemies and the faithlessness that we need protection from. Pray and plan and take appropriate precautions. But then step into this world, step into the darkness and build. Labor for Christ and his kingdom because our ultimate protection is found only in him. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord God, by the power of your spirit, we ask now that you would give us strength to live out the truth that we have heard today from your word. And we pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.